Welcome to Marsha's Plate. This is an interview episode where we talk to friends, family, other community members, and anybody else we want to talk to. <laughs> hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? Hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? How you been doing? Just checking in today. Hey y'all, so we are back from break and we wanted to start off with an interview with the amazing Arya Saeed. She's been on the show before, but not talking about her tenure at the Transgender District. And so I wanted to kind of highlight her because she is an amazing social change advocate and award-winning political strategist based in San Francisco. I wanted to have a conversation about her history and her leadership strategy because that is what I find amazing about her, other than her great personality and fashion sense. I think that she is a dope person when it comes to leading the way in and trans work and women's rights and body positivity in so many elements of work that she has done in the past. She has led sex worker rights initiatives. She has led public tons of public policy in San Francisco and the state of California. And I haven't had her on the show by herself. So I wanted to celebrate her stepping down and share her brilliance. Enjoy. You work so hard to found the district. Mm -hmm. It's a couple of people who were, there was a conglomerate of y'all who really work hard, but you were at mm -hmm. the helm. And can you share just a small portion of that story? Yeah. So at the time in 2016, I was at St. James Infirmary, uh, which at that time was the nation's only peer-led sex worker clinic in the country. And I was deputy director. And we were, we had just moved back into the Tenderloin, so we had a clinic space in the Tenderloin, and we had learned of a new development that was happening on uh, near Turk and Taylor intersection, so immediately right behind it. And that developer wanted to build luxury housing with no affordable housing included in the building and a luxury five-star hotel. And the climate in San Francisco at that time was that most, because of the tech wave of 2010, 2011, most tech companies moved to San Francisco to be headquartered here. And as an unintended consequence, housing skyrocketed and many, many people, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced from neighborhoods like Soma, Mission District, um, inner Richmond area, Bayview, Hunters Point, right? And these are traditionally black and Latino neighborhoods or Filipino neighborhoods that are seeing, yeah, hundreds of thousands of families, people being displaced literally within a 18 month time span. Mm. Like it was very aggressive, very intentional. And so you had apartments in the mission, for instance, that were like $800 a month and then never updated anything. People were being Ellis Act evicted. Uh, which is an act that allowed owners or developers to sort of just evict for no apparent reason, but claim to be moving in or turning it into condos or what have you. And so you had all these people 
um, losing their housing, housing, affordable housing, and then those same developers, landlords, what have you, were starting to charge three, four, five, six thousand a month for apartments that initially were going for seven, eight hundred a month. Because that's how we know capitalism works, right? <laughs> or is supply and then demand, and then um, sort of manipulating that supply and demand, right? right, to make things overpriced and really expensive. The Tenderloin was considered an undesirable neighborhood, so it was a container space uh, that the city had designed it so anything worth having or exciting was happening in the Tenderloin, and so that's where. Uh, we had the densest population of trans people in this neighborhood and um, obviously homeless communities, drug using, um, but also multiculturally um, large Arab population, Vietnamese population, all in this neighborhood, black mm -hmm. population, etc. So, long story short, uh, we responded to the developer and demanded that they provide um, a community benefit to the trans community, or the, at that time, the LGBT community, because they were also building on top of LGBT historical assets. Um, so underneath this building, they were going to tear it down completely. Uh, there was an old gay bar from the 1920s that was there. There were like underground tunnels where queer people, trans people would gather and do underground parties and shows and what have you. And, and so... Um, all those sort of resources were going to be lost. Mm -hmm. And so myself, Janetta Johnson, um, Honey Mahogany, Stephanie Ashley, and Nate Albee, and at that time Brian Basinger, banded together as a coalition. Um, at that time, the Compton's LGBT Cultural District Coalition. Right. To, um, to, to the developer was not interested in providing a community benefit. Uh, they had already committed to uh, a housing group in building a new building because they didn't want affordable housing on their site. So they were like, oh, we purchased a parking lot that we're going to turn into a high-rise for just affordable housing. But being that the building was, uh, it was going to cost over $400 million to build everything, and they were only offering $10 million at that time for this affordable housing building, we felt that just wasn't substantial enough mm -hmm. to give back to the LGBT community. And so that's what started our, our fight to create a district. And I think the, at the time, the intention was that the district would be able to buffer this change in real estate and neighborhoods, whereas, yeah, most neighborhoods have completely changed and the Tenderloin was sort of this last neighborhood that was still its original self. Mm -hmm. We thought that the district would sort of be able to buffer and mitigate and manage the impact of gentrification and be able to make sure that we weren't having any of our folks displaced. What about your history? informs this, made this a passion project for you in particular? Because mm. all those people that you named <clears throat> didn't come to the helm. Why did you do it? Why was it a passion project for you? Because of all the founders, I was still living in the Tenderloin. And, you know, I came to San Francisco like so many trans people with this dream, with this idea that this was the only city that would give me an opportunity. 
And then I got here, and there wasn't any opportunity. <laughs> um, most of the trans people I know were living in the Tenderloin in the SROs, um, so the hotels, and doing survival sex work. If you were lucky, you got to work at a MAC makeup counter part-time. And if you were even luckier, you got to be an outreach worker at an HIV prevention organization. And that was it. Right? I didn't see, especially black, but also Latina trans women, I didn't see us having any other opportunities outside of those three. And so when I moved to San Francisco, most of the girls I knew in the predicament that we were in, in shelters and what have you, we were all doing sex work. The city will champion trans rights, they'll give you hormones, they'll pay for your surgery now. Um, not back then, but now they will. Um, but they won't house you, and they won't employ you. I felt I had so many ideas, and based on my own lived experience of what I felt I needed when I was homeless or um, marginally housed mm -hmm. and doing sex work, like, oh, this would have changed the course of my life if this existed at this time. If I had access to this resource, I'd be so much further mm. than where I am today if this existed when I was 19 or 21 or 25. People just have to really shift their vision in thinking of us as a resource in leadership mm. instead of thinking of us just as clients. Because back then, to yeah. get the numbers, to get the grant funding, da da da, you had to add a client. So mm -hmm. if I'm saving you out of this poverty, if I'm saving you out of this, um, whatever your, your drug addiction you no longer are a client anymore so that can shake up the amount of money i can get the exactly. amount. so i'm not even thinking of you as a resource to be a leader no. even though you have the lived experience to inform my, a leadership uh, a solution and strategy that really impacts trans people yeah and people didn't see that no i mean i came into leadership at a time when it was not normal to hire a black trans woman to lead anything. Um, so when I got my um, start in leadership, um, at that time was to be deputy director of St. James Infirmary and then eventually, in tandem with that role, executive director of Taja's Coalition. Nobody was hiring black trans women to be leading anything at all. What was customary was that white trans people, if it was a trans-specific project, they would hire like a white trans man to be like the study director or the program director. And then like the Asian trans women um, or trans folk in general would be like in leadership in those programs. And then as a black girl, you only could be an outreach worker. So when I came into the work, the only girls that stick out in my mind that I was seeing was like Amber Gray, Brianna McCree, Veronica Fembries. And then other girls would come and go, like Bianca worked part-time at a as an outreach worker and then also uh, was working at Mac or right, like there were girls that were sort of doing a bunch of things all at the same time. Uh, but as far as black girls, there wasn't anyone in leadership mm -hmm. at an org. I think Janetta had just became in leadership, actually, at TGIJP. Okay. Uh, so Miss Major had sort of set sail, and um, and Janetta was coming into leadership through Miss Major. 
And I got hired to be deputy director of St. James Infirmary. And that was like a big deal back then. Who hired you? Stephanie. Okay. Stephanie Ashley. Um, So because of her, I was platformed. Mm -hmm. So I had been in the work for quite some time. um, Because you were like busting your ass at multiple organizations, right? Yes. So a lot of people don't realize I have been working in social change since I was 16. I got my start at um, Habitat for Humanity in Portland, Oregon, uh, which is where I'm from. And then I actually did a program through Bank of America. At that time, it was called the Neighborhood Excellence Initiative. And I was selected to represent the state of Oregon. So they picked three people from each state across the United States. Um, So they had hundreds of thousands of applications. This was like a really competitive program back then. I got in, I got to intern with Habitat for Humanity for um, six to eight months, something like that. And then in addition, I did trainings in D.C. So the chief of protocol uh, for the Bush administration at the White House, we did our training at the White House on etiquette and protocol. And we did all these workshops with um, senators and elected officials, but also political strategists. Uh, training us, right? We're all youth. We're all under 18 Mm. on how to be like the best leaders of the future Mm. kind of thing. And so that was like my foundation. And then I worked like with the LGBT community, usually through colleges. So Portland State University, Southern Oregon University, Queer Queer Resource Center, that sort of thing. Um, And that's how my advocacy began. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I was homeless, I was doing sex work, and then that's when I got started in trans advocacy work. Mm -hmm. Um, I got my start at Trans Thrive, Mm -hmm. which is a drop-in center here, and then eventually worked like at the LGBT Center, and then worked for San Francisco State University, and then worked for UCSF for a number of years, coordinating their research studies for trans people, and was like HIV test counselor at the same time for St. James Infirmary uh, for many years. So going into the bathhouses and the um, the stroll, the track, whatever, and doing testing, STD testing, all the street fairs. And I people used to tease me because I've worked literally three or four jobs at a time because they don't pay you well as an outreach worker. So I would work 20 hours here, you know, 10 hours on the CCSF study and then 15 hours on um, this, like, HIV prevention program. And and so the only days off for many years I had was uh, federal holidays. Those were the only days I would have off. And so I generally would work from, like, 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. Monday through Sunday. Exploitatively paying your dues. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also, yeah, I had, that was all informed by trauma too. So it's mm-hmm. like, while I'm this case manager running this drop in center, they weren't paying me enough. And so I was living off of payday loans in a cycle, right? And um, had an eviction notice on my door, and I'm case managing people and helping them fight their eviction on their door, and I have one too. Yeah. Right? Like, and so for me, the only solution at that time was just, uh, okay, I got to work. If I like to eat. I like to eat well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like housing, preferably with no roaches. You know what I mean? So, like, I had to grind. and But it was also work I believed in. Right. And I figured the work that I did in my 20s 
would set me up for the rest of my life. That was what I was convinced. If I grinded out and, you know, made the sacrifices to be successful in my 20s, then I'd be able to live off of that work for the rest of my career. That was my hope. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community and I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here so you're not only helping to sustain us you're helping to sustain other people in a community because I put my money where my mouth is you know that's just the kind of bitch I am community is fuck (laughs) so thank you I really really appreciate you and if you have not become a patron why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. One of your first projects when you came to the helm of um, Transgender District Mm -hmm. is to beautify the district. Yes. Which is, um, you know, the district is smack dab in the middle of the Tenderloin neighborhood. And if anybody's been there, (laughs) it ain't too pretty. (laughs) (laughs) There's There's a charm to it. You know, we can embrace there's, there's a beauty in the grind. Yeah. What changes did you implement and why did you start there? After we founded the district, it sort of became world news. And, you know, media outlets around the world were featuring our work. Um, Honey, Jeanette, and I were often doing press around the district that whole first year. You know, I'm the only founder connected to the Tenderloin in this particular way. So I would walk around the Tenderloin and the girls would be like, I keep seeing you on TV talking about this district. Where is this district? And I would be like, oh, you're in it. We're in the district. (laughs) And the girls would be like, oh, okay. (laughs) And Janetta actually, when I finally said yes to coming back to lead the district, she was like, I hope you beautify it. And, like, make it pretty. Like, that's something you're really good at. And so that's, I mean, that's, we didn't really have a lot of resources. And so that's where I I got started. Mm -hmm. Because I figured, you know, we're, like, telling the whole world that this place exists. And then our own community in this neighborhood is like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people thought it was, like, a vanity project of the city. Like, oh, the city is just doing this. They're just, you know calling it this thing for, you know, social justice cookies. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so we started painting the flags, Mm -hmm. uh, the trans flags. That was the first big thing that we did. I don't think people know behind the scenes, working with the city and the amount of bureaucracy to get anything done usually can take a, a year or two years. We got that done in two months. Um, I went to the city They were like, oh, that'll take 18 months. And I was like, no, we're going to make this happen. And we fought tooth and nail. And we finally got the city 
um, and at that time the director of that department to move mountains so that all the light poles could be painted with the trans flags. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we did the banners, we've planted trees, and then there's stuff the community hasn't seen yet. So around that time, we fought for trans pride crosswalks Mm -hmm. to be painted in the intersections. And there's numerous construction now, and I think those things will launch in 2024, 2025, mm-hmm. right? But we fought for that in 2019. But some of these, one of the reasons why you were able to kind of push this forward is because you have built relationships in City Hall. And yes. um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I was appointed by Director Davis and Mayor Edley. Um, after we founded the district, I just didn't have a desire to really stay at St. James anymore. Um, Stephanie was leaving. I did, uh, we both shared that we were leaving on the same day to lunch with each other. Like, I have something to tell you. Oh, no, I have something to tell you. Oh, well, you go first. And it was like, Steph Joy had been with St. James since she was a teenager. And she was in her early 30s and was like, you know, I, I need my next thing. Um, and her next thing was housing. She really wanted to work on affordable housing. I felt like I had cut my teeth you know, in social change in a very grueling way, which is, you know, running a drop-in center and a clinic and a street outreach team and name change clinics and several, you know, offshoot programs and a harm reduction center and safe syringe access site, right? That's the umbrella of St. James. And I was 27, and so I just felt like, you know, I'd like to do my next thing. And... I was being considered for an appointment um, by the mayor's office, and then I don't think that that fell through. And then uh, Director Davis and I, uh, she's the director of San Francisco Human Rights Commission, and she really loved my work, and she felt I should be a part of the team to to work on LGBT policy. And so I was appointed um, in December 2017. Um, to serve um, under her in City Hall and the Human Rights Commission, um, overseeing LGBT policy. And I love that job. Mm. Um, I had, it was complicated. I was in my Saturn's return. I was going through it. I was questioning everything. <laughs> like, am I meant to be in a cubicle every day? Like, you know, there were definitely, like, challenges. Um, but I love the work that I was able to do in a government context. So, mm. honey... Um, had an opportunity to leave the district. So she was leading the district since we started it. And she decided to go work for supervisor, at that time, uh, the supervisorial candidate, Matt Haney, um, who was running for District 6 supervisor. And so she went to go work for him after his election. And so we sort of swapped places. So, yeah. Um, So that time where I was in the in City Hall, I got to obviously make connections and I understood how local government worked. Um, I had also did the Women's Policy Institute program uh, through the Women's Foundation. So I had sort of this training and a policy lens mm-hmm. and then pivoted and was able to apply it working in, in City Hall and treating every single thing like a policy issue. All right. 
And so you use that those kind of connections to say, hey, I know it takes, you said it's going to take 18 months, but no, we're going to do this in two months because yeah. I know you can. <laughs> yeah. I think that's powerful. After the founding process and after you took over after Honey, you started like this, it was like three member staff, right? It was like you, Sean Green, and Janelle Lester. Mm-hmm. And um, it has grown now into this place of professional ve- development for multiple trans people, mm-hmm. you know, from that from that time. Can you, um, it has created more jobs. It has created um, with not just a job, but a well-paying job mm-hmm. for multiple people and volunteer opportunities for the queer community at large. Um, can you talk about your mindset in regards to that? Why is that an important thing when it comes to creating spaces for trans people to be developed and put them in places of leadership? Why is that mm. was an important keystone of the district? I think what was really important to me is that while we had this wave of visibility and you know, I'm like building this organization from the ground up. So it started with me and then I took to Sean to lunch and brought Sean Green on board. Uh, thankfully, he said yes. And it was just him and I for quite some time. And then as I was able to fundraise, we were able to start expanding staff. Something that was really important to me was giving trans people upward mobility. Because I felt like most of the nonprofits in San Francisco, you know, they hire you with, they get a grant, then they hire you because they need a trans. Uh, trans, <laughs> and then they like pay you sixteen dollars an hour and work you to the bone, and then when the grant is over, they just give you your pink slip. That's happened to me and so many girls over and over and over again, and and they don't really develop you in terms of leadership, and they have no desire to. It's not in their best interest as an organization to do so, right? Um, they hire you in leadership if you have a degree or what have you, and if you're a trans, black trans woman, you better have like a PhD and like all this experience and what have you in order to get in the door and be considered. Otherwise, uh, you're just kind of typecasted. And I saw that trend and I hated it. I also felt that if we had the resources in our own personal lives, right, that whole like when you're on an airplane and they tell you, if there's an in case of emergency and the oxygen mask comes down, you put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then do it for like the child or the infant. Who does that for trans people? Um, especially trans people with multiple barriers to upward mobility. Nobody at the time. So everyone thought I was crazy because when I brought girls like Janelle or Jupiter I was paying them eighty to a hundred thousand a year. And they didn't have degrees or the merit or anything, right? It wasn't a merit-based approach. It was this idea of, like, I need you to work super hard because we're small, right? And we have a lot of work to do in this community. And a lot of people are counting on us to, to push forward some changes in terms of what we can access as trans people. And so I need you to be committed, but I also need you to be able to take care of yourself and have the housing that you want that feels affirming, um, to have access to the things that make you feel affirmed so that 
That's not rocket science. That's like so basic. <laughs> if you want your employees to work well for you, why not take care of their needs? <laughs> That's so common sense. Yeah, there was an article that I had read in that time in Forbes that said if you can't afford to pay your employees salaries that allow them to only have to commute 10 to 20 minutes to work, then you can't afford to operate in that city. And so what often happens is these nonprofits will, and not just nonprofits, like for-profit as well, but they'll hire you and then you live an hour away and you got to take a BART train and a Muni train to get to work every day. And then you're like, this was me, right? Lived experience. Everything at the district that I ever created, that I ever led, was informed by my own lived experience. So I was hopping the BART turnstile every morning to get to my job and then getting fare evasion tickets because I couldn't afford the $300 a month on BART to get back and forth from Oakland to San Francisco every day, right, for all of my jobs. And so I didn't want that for... Underpaid jobs. Right, and you're working in social service, right? So you're case managing people that are in crisis, you're helping mitigate, right? They are so deep in crisis that they've come to you and say, help me fix it. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't know where I'm going to get food. And then you're supposed to be this organized person that's like, here's a voucher. Here's this resource. I'm going to call over and see if we can get you a bed at this shelter. I'm going to da-da-da-da. You check in with me in the morning and da-da-da-da-da. Right? Like, you're supposed to be that person, but my life was chaos, right? Because I couldn't afford to live in the city. And so then I, got, I, I was evicted from my apartment. So I moved to Oakland, was living in a utility closet, um, right? Rented out a utility closet with four roommates in the house <laughs> and, like, couldn't afford the things. And so what I noticed was that the thing that changed most of my life is, like, when I was working multiple jobs or then became in leadership, I had the resource to be sustained. And that was the cure, Right? So people chastise you, like, you're not living on a budget, or why do you have credit card debt? And it's like, well, if I made enough money, then I'd be able to cure it in most instances. The issue is that I don't have enough resource. Right? Yeah. So when we started hiring people at the district, what was important to me was it was professional development. I was treating it like a fellowship. So it's like you get your salary, you work super hard, but you're also learning things along the way, hopefully transferable skills. So I was enrolling all the staff in professional development opportunities. All the staff had to do some sort of institute training program in addition to their work at the district. And I figured the trade-off was like, you make six figures a year, I make sure everyone gets a bonus at the end of the year, I make sure that you know we have fabulous staff retreats or whatever. And benefits, health benefits. Right, we're paying for your co-pays for your surgeries. Um, and all the things, and you have premium world-class health benefits. And, yeah, in exchange, I need you to grind out and learn some things so that you can go out and do your thing in the world. Mm. That was the idea. You know what was also powerful? That, um, that when I was... You know, I've been in strategic meetings because I've been a leader in community for so long. So mm -hmm. I've come to you all's meeting. And one of the powerful things that I saw you do was when you were advocating for a raise for yourself. 
You also were saying, hey, if you give me this raise, I want the lowest paid person oh, yeah. in my organization to be raised to where they are incomparable to me. So it's mm -hmm. not just I'm advocating for myself to get a raise, to get this, but I'm also everybody in my organization, the least amount I need them to go up to. So they're not this, this far distance from me yeah. when it comes to percentage of salary. That's powerful because who is doing that? Not many people. They're not. No. They're really just fighting for themselves. But you literally. Work. Sometimes I regret it. Though. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't regret it. We'll talk no, about that. No, later. I don't regret it. I think that was my personal conviction because it was an accountability. I believe many leaders, for profit, nonprofit, doesn't matter. Because there's such a scarcity mindset, and then there's like a lot of ego and arrogance of like, oh, I'm up here. I'm, I'm the CEO, or I'm the whatever, whatever. And, you know, your lowest paid staff person usually is marginally paid, mm -hmm. right? Think your janitor, your uh, front desk person, your, right? And yet they hold so much of the work, right? And I didn't like that. And the, I wanted to make sure that we practice what we preach. And so I didn't want to make more than two times my lowest paid staff person in my mind. That was sort of the number I came up with. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was because I, if I want to raise and I need to hustle to fundraise so that my team is okay, but more than anything as a person, everybody around me, I want everyone around me to be fabulous. I want everyone around me to have things. Like, I don't like this, that energy, and we meet people like this in our day-to-day -day lives, but like that energy of like, I'm supposed to be the most fabulous person with the access to the things and, and, and no one else can or what I don't like that That's weird. everyone around me eats yeah right like we're a, a unit we're a team especially because I've always run sort of a, in, the, in the district's case a very small org cost of living is high and then trans people it's expensive being trans it just mm -hmm. is it's expensive being a black woman <laughs> it just is and so you know my lowest paid staff oftentimes were the most entry-level positions where we would hire people with multiple barriers and they were black trans women mm -hmm. and they had surgeries they wanted to get they needed stable safe housing they needed things yeah and so yeah why not like mm -hmm. i don't know i just that's what i believe and people thought i was crazy for that like Still, to this day, people are like, oh, you overpaid everybody, or you, um, but it's just what I believed. Yeah, that's wild. That somebody even would, that would even come out of their mouth, as far as, far as especially people who have, like, these equity politics. That's what mm -hmm. equity is. It's about, you know that these people are some of the most marginalized people. I've seen you hire, hire people from the street. Like, I've seen mm -hmm. you say, I see you here, you're dedicated to this job. Bring you over to my team. I've mm -hmm. literally seen you do that, and it changes that person's life. We have people on the team now who was living, you mm -hmm. know, with, you know, just in different situations in other states, and they came here and they're in a whole different level of leadership, and mm -hmm. it just changed their life and shifted it. And so I think that's I think that's powerful, especially when it's a party of politics to do that kind of change work. And I'm, you know. I've always been proud of that when it comes to you because I've even seen you take a pay cut so that everybody, when you know, when it yeah. was shaky in some of those years, and you take a pay cut so that everybody can still get their salary and still get their benefit. I've seen you do that, and I think that's powerful as a leader, and that's why so many people trust your leadership. 
on the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm sure you had times where you had to let people go. How did you handle that? And why, or mm. you know, what are, what were the some who, some people who may not who they were, but in situations are you sure? where <laughs> in, um, this is not that kind of podcast. <laughs> in those situations where you had to let people go, there's a lot of times people are like, oh my god, you're letting a trans woman you're go. You're firing a black trans you're woman. <laughs> and so, describe that. How do you handle those situations? Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> So the district has fired numerous staff. Um, That is very true. I've never talked about it um, publicly. But a few things. One, we ordinarily, at that time during my leadership, legal or not, were pretty much only hiring trans people or non-binary folks. So it would make sense that as one of the largest employers of trans people, (laughs) that we would then be firing trans people, right, if needed. Second, with trans, other trans people, I've always been really patient. So it takes a lot to get to a place of, like, separation and, like, this isn't working out. At the district, there's no exception. Like, folks, usually by the time they've been dismissed from the organization, it means there's been numerous attempts and numerous sort of mechanisms used to salvage something. Right in in that circumstance, we've had situations where there were just folks that weren't ready. I remember I hired a girl. She was working security at the mall, and I saw her, and she knew who I was, and she was like jokingly like, "Oh, can I come work at the district?" And I was like, "Well, can you start tomorrow?" <laughs> you know, she was talking about how she was working as a security guard. She was feeling isolated, what have you. Again, I was very unconventional in my leadership. I didn't do job interviews, very rarely. Um, I would meet with you, and if my gut told me to hire you, then I would hire you. And I know that's probably not like the best situation, like lessons learned, but I just feel like I didn't want, you know, interviews make you nervous and palm sweaty, and it feels like a, a challenge, like you have to answer questions in a certain way or something. Like I don't think that's an authentic representation of if someone can work for you. I have done numerous job interviews with people, five or six, and then they come into the workplace and they're hell. Like, <laughs> oh my God, Like, how did you get in here? In this scenario, um, yeah, this young girl, we brought her in, and she was overwhelmed. Because a lot of times at the district, what was happening is they would see what was happening on social media and in media as a reflection of, oh, that must be what the district does all day. So it's like there's like a video of me being like ringing the bell for the Warriors game and and the team is sitting courtside or there's like videos of us raising the flag with the mayor or me meeting the Queen of the Netherlands or whoever, right? Like, And so you see these like highlight reels on social media and then you think, oh, that's the job. The glam. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, girl, they're on Instagram because these are like random the moments. Right. These are random moments that probably won't happen again, but okay. And so we would get a lot of young girls who were attracted to the district because of that. And then they would come in and they're like, oh, you want me to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like... Shift starts at 10 a.m., boom. You work till 6, paid lunch. 
what I expect, you manage your time, but you get the things done, whether it's receipt justification or launching a new program or uh, sitting in meetings on my behalf so that I can work on fundraising, like, um, and then you're doing committees and you're doing the city process and you're going to city hall or like whatever it is. And so... Um, you know, doing Trans- outreach. Like you're sitting in this meeting and translating the notes for me or, or yeah. somebody else. or Yeah, and then engaging with our folks, doing town halls. I want you doing grassroots organizing in the Tenderloin. Um, what have you. And a lot of staff were really shocked by that. And so we, like this young girl, she just wasn't ready. She wasn't in a position in life at that time. So I transferred her. I called over at St. James. I was like, you need to hire her for the trans housing shelter. And so she was able to sort of start softer because she was really struggling. And what I didn't want is for these trans folks with already multiple barriers, and then they're like, oh, I think I want to work there. And then I say yes, and then they get there and they feel like they're stupid or they feel like they, do you know what I mean? Because that's what was happening. And you would see their Mm self-esteem declining. Yeah. And, like, because the work was moving really fast. And often in those moments, I didn't have the patience. Like, I'm not, you know, often I can be very tough love. Um, and so and I would. And then you also see other trans people in this space that are rising to the occasion. Yes. They are rising. So it, how can that make me feel? Right, because you're on a team full of trans people. Right. And some people are like, ooh, I'm going to step up, and I'm yeah. stepping up and doing amazing work. And then you, you're struggling. So how does that make me feel? Yeah. Right. I can see how it can be. And so in those cases, I would just try to find something that was more suited so that they could, because then they would come from the district, and whether they knew it or not, they would have a little bit more experience than they thought, and they would go like work at the trans housing program as like the front desk person, but then they would know the thing, right? In other cases, in terms of dismissal, it was either like not a personality fit, or there were a series of incidences that just were not appropriate for the workplace. Um, And in those moments, unfortunately, you know, younger staff and this generation really, a lot of the activism is like TikTok activism. So it's like, oh, and so you can, and what's beautiful though that I admire is like people will create narrative and then they'll put it out there. And what's interesting to watch is people will just take that as truth. Mm. And so there have been moments where the district has been dragged online and posts have gone viral, like that drag queen that, you know, was making these allegations for the district. That post went viral for her. Good for her. (laughs) Um, I'm glad she got that. And at the same time, it wasn't true, Mm -hmm. right? Or it was a half-truth. Right, without context, but people immediately ingest that. They go on their computer or their phone, they see a post, and an allegation is a truth. Right? And I know that's complicated because we see that in pop culture a lot more now. And in this instance, certain girls that would go on the internet and be like, Arya's evil, and she fired me, and she fired me because I'm a black trans woman, or whatever. And then people would take that as Bible. And That's weird, because it's like, you, like, did your black transness get erased no, in the situation? You know, as I think as black people, something that we see often is that when we look at someone and we think they're of a certain access and success, we take away their blackness in some ways. Like Oprah, right? Like, we don't think Oprah's impacted by anti-blackness because of all these strides that she's made. 
-hmm. So if she shares a moment where she's navigating her blackness, as like black, Zurich, <laughs> right? <laughs> With a bag. Yes. Or as black people, I think what happens is like we'll either see it and like, oh, you know, that's just what it is. Like even Oprah or Beyonce and Jay Z or whoever are dealing with these kind of issues. Or, as I see on the internet, it's like we become dismissive. Like, oh, well, she's so rich, or she's this, or whatever, whatever. And it, like, justifies the thing. It's very complicated, the internet. This is why I try to stay away <laughs> and no, hide I, under my rock. One of the things that I um, kind of broke my heart a little bit, I remember um, when Blanco Brown was murdered by the Walgreens security. Mm -hmm. Um, during one of the um, um, protests or you know demonstrations, they were like almost blaming the me in the district because of that, and I thought that that was ridiculous when we we know the scenario that was happening there. What was ridiculous was that the media was running it. Yeah. So okay. it was like these two trans people who already had beef with the district. For because their friend Janelle was fired um, many moons ago, and so Corey Moreland and the other one I don't remember his name, but they specifically said because of Arya Said in the trans district, Banco Brown is dead. And I'm like, I wasn't even. First of all, I don't work at Walgreens. I wasn't even there. Um, Banco Brown wasn't connected to the district. Um, so Banco was, from what I'm told, was getting most of his support and services from Young Women's Freedom Center in Oakland and other projects, right? Not the district. The district also isn't a direct service org, right? So we don't have a drop-in program. We don't have hotel vouchers. We don't have food gift cards, right? That stuff exists for trans people. The district doesn't provide that service. So why is the district being blamed? And but, you named specifically. <laughs> yes. Well, I started to get used to it for me. I think what's tricky is, like, a lot of the hate, the backlash, the negative comments, the narratives around me, I got used to that for me. What bothered me was that it was impacting the district. It didn't matter that it was bothering me. It hurt. You've seen me, you know, have a moment where I cry about it and then I get over it. Like, at the end of the day, whether I wanted to be visible or not, I didn't, but it happened. And then this inadvertently became the life that I chose because I still work in that vein, right? And so I got to take the good with the bad, right? I am blessed. Um, I live in my dream apartment. I have access to things. I've traveled around the world. I have a coin. I'm set. I'm good. Thank God. Um, and thankfully, my work has been able to sustain me in that way. The consequences... People will have opinions and like the nastiest thoughts about you as a person and they will never have met you. And you just gotta take that. Mm -hmm. But that kind of stuff was really hurtful when the district gets blamed because I feel like I'm human, but I created this cause that like has been uplifting and celebrating the trans umbrella from jump and every action the organization has taken has been to uplift and elevate and celebrate mm -hmm. and stabilize our community, right? So me as a person, sure, I have my issues, but like the org hasn't done anything. We've housed numerous trans people. This just happened to be a situation that where, we weren't connected to. Yeah, that we weren't connected to, and we otherwise would have helped him had we known. Um, but people 
in the community, I think, took it too far under this guise of like activism, especially Corey Moreland, because he has fired most of the black trans women that he's hired, and nobody says anything about that, because then I hired them. Mm-hmm. Right? When they were losing their housing, they came to ask a job from me, and then we hired them. So let's talk about what the district actually does. Okay. <laughs> I want to start with 2020, um, because we all, as a whole, as a humanity, were affected by COVID-19. Um, but it particularly hit our community hard. It impacted so much of our work, um, but and it forced us to do like this total overhaul of our plans for that year and redirect our strategies to battle this new like unknown threat, right? Mm-hmm. And so through our through your leadership, Transgender District rose to the occasion in a beautiful way. Can you talk about your mindset during that time and how it changed your strategy? and how it impacted San Francisco, no, really the country. I mean, I am really grateful, obviously not for COVID and the pandemic particularly, but for that moment, um, because it gave me permission to really try anything. Mm-hmm. In this instance, this was like uh, the district at that time, we, you know, we were kind of doing events and then, you know, we we're literally a cultural district. Um, a lot of people don't realize what that is, but most of the cultural districts in San Francisco, they have an event or two and, you know, they have like some community gatherings and maybe an art program and, you know, that's it. And like, that was the aspiration of the district, but in a trans LGBT context. Right. And so in 2020, we were getting messages from trans folks in the neighborhood this is like literally when Mayor Breed announced shelter in place, and we were the first country or first city in the country to do so. And like everyone's going on lockdown. So remember, like that day where we're like all running. I'm I'm from Houston. Okay, so lockdown. it's uh, sorry. It's lockdown. What's sorry? That? So because <laughs> they, they were ignoring any kind of lockdown. Okay, so we had what was called shelter in place or a lockdown where. Effective immediately. Oh no, I was being sarcastic. I oh my god, okay, is. never mind. I was <laughs> about to explain it. Because my state okay. is crazy. <laughs> but in San Francisco, we had a very conservative lockdown. Ooh. So everything was closed. And you could not just be like outside for no reason. Eventually, they're like, oh, you can walk around as long as you have a mask and what have you, but no gatherings. Like at the park, people were breaking those rules. So they drew like chalk circles. Like, and so you, like people had like COVID pods and whatever, whatever, right? Like their friend group that they could be like unmasked with. And right, remember, we didn't know how you got it. So it was like people were lysawing people. Like I was meeting with. And so, picture this, the mayor announces shelter in place. Me, like everybody else, is running to the grocery stores to get food. The lines are out the door, into the parking lot, out into the street. I literally fought with a woman for the last bag of potatoes and like a bell pepper. And I'm like, I thought you were vegan and gluten free. like. Apparently, everyone, all that went away because the only things left on the shelves are like the vegan gluten-free things. I'm like, not the girls hoarded the Oreos, honey. I'm like, <laughs> like this is a world pandemic. I'm gonna go hide and bunker down. Like, yeah, forget this. Um, yeah, forget this diet. Um, but 
that being said, I had a moment where I think my grocery bill came up to $800, right? So you go around, you're waiting in line. I will never forget it. It's like there were lines in every aisle of the grocery store and you're getting what you can, right? And then you're trying to Amazon the rest, dildos, food, whatever you needed to, <laughs> to shelter in place. And um, I pulled out a credit card that I never use to pay for my groceries. Like it was nothing, right? Again, everything that we do at the district at that time was informed by our lived experiences. So me, Janelle, and Sean talked about that like in our team meeting and we had some messages from trans folks who were like, please help me. I'm on SSI or fixed income. I don't have any groceries. I don't have any medical supplies. I don't have my medications. We're supposed to shelter in place, but I don't know what to do. You know, this was long before a stimulus or anything, right? Government was like lockdown and they hadn't created a mechanism to sustain or support our most impacted people. Right. Right. So we got in so much trouble for this, but the next day we created a mutual aid fund and we were giving out cash, right? But because we didn't know how you got COVID, we were like PayPal, Venmo, <laughs> Zelle, <laughs> um, all that. And we just started giving money away. So people would uh, fill out a Google form. And I think the most we were giving out was $500. Because um, that was like the cutoff before we would have to report it to the IRS or something. And obviously the demand was really high in our local community. And then we opened it up, or people naturally started to apply because word spread. And then we got in trouble by the city uh, because we were using a city grant to do it. And they said, you better not be using that grant. <laughs> and we were like, but our people need help. What are we supposed to do? <laughs> And so, thankfully, we were able to fundraise, and um, kind-hearted people donated. And so we were able to help over, I think it was almost 1,400 or more trans people across the country. Mm. Eventually, FEMA and the Human Rights Commission asked us to uh, work with them on giving out resources as well. And so that's how we were able to help so many people, yeah. trans and non-trans. So eventually we became a resource for anybody that felt that they needed this resource. Yes. Something that was important to me is we did the honor system. I didn't check pay stubs. I didn't, if you said you had a need and you went through all this trouble to get it, give them the coin. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't have, it's a pandemic. We don't have time for all this. Right. And so that's what we, yeah, that's what we did. And then we worked with like Trans Law Center, Black and Pink, and all these other orgs to replicate it. Yeah. And so they reached out like, hey, how did you do it? How did you find out the legals? I'm like, I just did it. And <laughs> <laughs> we would figure it out that other stuff out later and like got in trouble and we figured it out and thank God for accountants. Yeah, they make everything work. And thank God for the celebrity connections, because during that time, there yeah. were celebrities that were kind of shouting y'all out because y'all were doing this powerful work. Yeah. And then that brought in like um, general donations, so you yeah. do what you want with that. Well, and that so, hey, was, I mean, a it. testament to Raquel Willis and Philip Picardi. Uh, they were at Out Magazine, right, before. And then they made a list, right, during this racial reckoning in the United States of like black trans orgs to support and we were on that list. So literally overnight we went from like 1,500 followers to like 29,000 in a week. Wow. 
And then Christina Aguilera, Selena Gomez, uh, Dan Levy, and all these people were like talking about our work on their platform, shouting us out. Um, trans celebrities, regular celebrities, I don't know. Like, and then it kind of it kind of became this thing. And what was amazing is that people donated, and we were able to grant out most of those resources back out into our community. So we, 2020 was the year where the district tried things on. So we were giving out food in the Tenderloin. Uh, we were giving out hot plates. We were doing COVID testing. Uh, the city was prioritizing vaccinations for the API and Latinx community, not the black community, not the trans community, and hadn't demonstrated a commitment to doing so. So we fought the city to get them to do uh, vaccination access in the Tenderloin, right, where the majority of our homeless constituents are, people of color that, you know, have low to no income, like this, right? Like, wouldn't you prioritize giving them access as well? Um, so we did that. We also piloted the entrepreneurship program from the money that was fundraised, mm-hmm. um, where we created a boot camp for trans entrepreneurs. And that was like based off of like a keynote I did for a tech company. And I had said like, oh, if the world doesn't hire us, which they don't, right? Um, they don't prioritize hiring a, us at least. Then we have to start our own businesses and make them successful and then hire other trans people. And that is how we'll care our economic disparity. You're reminding me of Dr. Joy James. Um, She has a concept called um, the captive maternal, and you gotta look that up. But Mm. it's, the concept is basically how, Usually, it's called captive maternal, but it's not. It's not gender based. There's, a, there's a, anybody could be one, but basically, it's these people in community that um, support so many people, and they're in that community, and they're holding them up just to get re-exploited. They're being exploited because when we think about you, kind of keep hope when you were in the trenches of. Um, Outreach, and you said I'm having these same eviction notice coming to me. I'm mm-hmm. having these same exploitive things, but I'm also the one that's coming in your bathroom when I know you might be going through a relapse or going through um, a suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm I'm just so happen to be strong enough to hold people up, but it's really just holding them up just enough to get exploited and and by the system. Yeah. And so she was talking about people who are captively in that kind of cycle um, of. Um, saving people in their community constantly even like if you go to the penny lady penny candy lady just people who are constantly in this in this in the state of every little thing that they get they're giving 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 and so i think it's important that we build that kind of infrastructure to get us out of that process or try to at least get us out of that process so that leads us to the transgender entrepreneur acceleration Mm -hmm. program so Poverty is such a complex issue that, um, and it's influenced by unemployment, low wages, inadequate social services, um, discrimination. So you created a few programs and initiatives that address those things specifically. So tell us about the um, Accelerator Entrepreneur Program. I mean, that program definitely, in addition to guaranteed income, that one, we'll about that yeah, that one was my baby. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we, I mean, we created that in the moment, and then we, like, 
I mean, cheers to our first cohort, because we didn't know what we were doing at all. Oh, my God. Name some of them. Um, a dear friend of mine, Jeff Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean helped with that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so Jeff, at that time, um, was working at Long Term Stock Exchange. And so, thankfully, he convinced the like owner to like partner with us mm-hmm. on this initiative and uh, we were able to pilot this like boot camp. I wanted it to be like like Shark Tank, mm-hmm. uh, I want to work for Diddy, like that kind of vibe. But like you train, you train, you train and then you come out with a ready to go business. So it's like we put people in the program and then we were like, the first cohort, we were definitely figuring everything out. But I knew that like at the end of the program they need to have a website. They need to have a logo. They need to have a brand. They needed to have their LLC or their tax incorporation for whatever they chose, like S Corp, LLC. I don't know, C Corp. Wait, wait. Let me give you the list. This is this is so amazing. So you give a ten thousand dollars seed grant. Yes. You now now at the first cohort they weren't so lucky. We didn't have that much money. <laughs> <laughs> I think they got twenty five hundred. That's all good. That's all I good. mean, the, a lot of the the first cohort messages they were messaging me up until I, I left the district, where they're like, um, "Do y'all giving out ten thousand now? <laughs> Do I get to come back?" <laughs> I love that. So ten thousand dollars seed grants, a sponsored website design, mm-hmm. a sponsored graphic design with logo and branding. So Mm-hmm. Sponsor one-on-one business coaching, sponsored corporation documents, sponsored photography and videography to amplify the business, mm-hmm. media coverage, sponsored boot camp that you just was talking about with Renaissance Academy. And this is all each cohort is now it's in the ten thousand dollar each yeah. range, but it is to give you tools and so you can just think about how my business can run and, and, and it can flourish. But these basic tools like, you know, um, LLC or whatever, how are they going to do it? It, it kind of takes the thought out of that. And I, know, I remember somebody who started my own business, that part of it as a, as a, a creative, that's something that was overwhelming to me. Same. But for somebody to come and help do that, that's powerful. Because who is invested in trans business leaders like that? Nobody. And I think... You know, something that, that I was taught in sex work advocacy specifically is how to think about the work that you did as an escort or a sex worker as transferable skills, like right. cash handling or, mm-hmm. you know, entrepreneurial, you know, <laughs> da, 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 da. And Advertising, marketing. You know, being that many, <laughs> not all, but many black and brown trans women come from that being one of our only options, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted... Who like who gives trans people permissions to dream themselves out of the disparity that we have? We talk so much about the disparity of trans people that it becomes our tagline. Mm-hmm. Trans people are the most marginalized and disenfranchised people in the world. They experience high rates of violence and HIV and discrimination and unemployment and homelessness and da 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 da. And all ra- true, right? All but. true, but we the unfortunately unintended consequence of all these research studies studying us for God knows how long, as they put out this rhetoric, and that's what sticks. So when you meet people, how many times have you done a keynote, this happened to me, where we go, we talk, and then, you know, afterwards, uh, people are super excited to meet 
because we exist, right? So they're so excited to meet you. They come up to the stage, and then they want to tell you about their trans child or whatever, and then they want to look at you and say, oh, you just have it so hard. Oh, you have such a hard life. That has happened to me numerous times, right? Like, and I think it's happened to all of us in this in this work. And that's what that's the the. Did you hear anything that I said? You like did you did you see the journey that I shared with you of how I got here? Yeah. Like, and you in in their mind, I'm like, you you didn't hear the growth and how the opportunities that I got here. I just came back from Paris. I just came back from here because somebody gave me the opportunity to dream big and do yes. something more. So I'm actually not in that disparity anymore because I'm trying to tell you that this is how you get the ones who are still in it how to save them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you're not listening to mm-hmm. trying to... Right, because they don't want to. Because I think in the cis subconscious, there's rank. You are lesser than me because you're a trans. Right? Because that's what they've been conditioned to see. Like, now that we've seen the emergence of trans voices and we've had this trans renaissance and the tipping point, now that people have had access to us, like, the... The thing, the thing becomes like, oh, you just must have it so hard. Oh, you're so brave, blah blah blah. Like, and yet no one takes that into an action. No one mobilizes that into action. So for me, I was like, there has to be some trans person who is sleeping on the BART, who is like, I, if I just got this opportunity, I could open a boutique, or I could become a hairstylist, or I could. Whatever it is, right? Like vocational, self-employment, whatever it is. Like, because that was me. There are so many times I'm like, ah, if only there was just like a small business grant, I could like open up a storefront or an online boutique or something. And, you know, those opportunities never happen. Mm -hmm. So that's why we started it in that particular way. was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. who? there has to be somebody. And sure enough, there was. Now the district gets hundreds and hundreds of applications for 16 spots mm. in a year. And so, how you have like 30 people so far in the cohort? Like over. I years. think we've graduated over. The, this last cohort was our largest, so that was 16 mm. people all at once. Before we were doing it like eight and eight, five and five, and so we've graduated over 30 people from the program. And what kind of success have you seen? It depends. And that's what makes it even more beautiful, is we've had people do the program and they don't start a business or they decide it's not for them. But at least with that business coaching, they learned how to do QuickBooks, they learned how to manage some finances, they, you know, and it planted a seed, yeah. right? And then for other people, um, it, it helped them grow. It was just the thing that they needed, yeah. right? So we had Melanie Ampon, um, you know, trans sister friend. I, uh, when I was a teenager and into my 20s, we used to go to Asia SF specifically to see her perform um, because she's a brilliant performer. Who knew that during COVID, she was on unemployment um, and she decided to put herself through electrolysis hair removal school she learned how to do it. She got licensed. And then she was like, I want to open my space. And I was like, oh, girl, let's help. And she did all the work on herself. So this is also the other piece is like, there are certain people that just rise to the occasion for themselves. And you are a facilitator towards them getting things, right? But you're not opening a business for them. 
right? Because we've had people graduate the program, open a business, and then be mad because they're like, well, the district didn't do enough for me. And it's like, well, we gave you $10,000. We designed your logo and paid for it. We got you the coaching. Did you want us to make the coffee, too? (laughs) At your coffee shop. (laughs) But I digress. Um, (laughs) Melanie has now gone on to open two campuses for a business, right? And then she did exactly what we dreamed of. So she's hired like five or six trans people and she's sponsored their trainings to become licensed electrolysis hair removal technicians. And then now they work for her and now they're shadowing her so that they can start their own thing too. Oh. Right? Beautiful. Right. (laughs) Right. And so all she needed, right, no bank would have done that. Do you know what I mean? Like, now probably, because she has, yeah, but like, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes it just, you need that opportunity to pivot, and then you bring people along with you. How brilliant is that? Like, I mean, there were others that were also, like, one of the participants opened their vegan cupcake shop, Um, right? So, like, there's been a range of different experiences, but I think, yeah, I think that program, no one else is doing that around the country. Not for trans people. So a growing body of research um, has that's based in experiments that shows that a basic guaranteed income actually works. Mm-hmm. And so it shows that it pulls people out of poverty. It shows that it improves their health outcomes. It shows that it makes people finding jobs easier. Common sense things. So you ambitiously decided to create the gift program. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? So the gift program um, is an acronym, Guaranteed Income for Trans People. The inspiration came long before we ever launched it. It came in 2019. I had a founder's retreat, and I had been doing research on guaranteed income, universal basic income pilots in developing countries. And I got into the research of Michael Tubbs, who was mayor of Stockton and was the first mayor in the country to launch a universal basic income pilot program. And the results are, of course, validate everything that we know anecdotally. I don't know why we always have to research the hell out of everything to start a program when we know that it will transform people's day-to-day lives. But that's the world we live in. And so... I wanted the district to be able to do that. In fact, that was my goal. Was like, once I get the district to do this, then I can leave. And yeah, so we started talking about it in 2019. Um, And then with the other founders, and then in 2020, the mutual aid concept, um, mutual aid is not, new, neither is guaranteed income, right? They're not new concepts. However, they were new for us and our budget and and (laughs) our, you know, sort of geography and and demographic. And I wanted to do one during COVID. I think the, the hope was to find a way to start it in 2020. And then COVID happened. And so we used sort of the framework to launch the mutual aid program. And then that snowballed into advocacy where I was starting to do talks 
um, with different foundations and specifically a forum around economic empowerment for LGBT people. I spoke at Horizons Foundation and sort of shared that my dream was to have a guaranteed income program in San Francisco for trans people. There were folks in city government who saw that and they advocated to Mayor Breed to launch it. And so Mayor Breed launched three different guaranteed income pilots. I think one was for foster youth, the other was for pregnant um, black, Latino, and Samoan, Pacific Islander, women who were pregnant and low income. And then the third was trans. And we, yeah, and so we started that program with Lion Martin um, Community Health Services. And of course, it didn't go the way that I'd hoped. Um, so while it is a pilot, there were a lot of concessions that had to be made and a lot of changes that we had to make changes to. And I think now my advocacy is that guaranteed income cannot be facilitated by local government. Um, I think it's better if it's privately funded, yeah. but no one would support it. Uh, we shopped it around to many foundations and, and there just wasn't interest. And the city is great in that, you know, they have the resource, but there were a lot of challenges. Um, who wants their guaranteed income to come from the tax collector's office, right? So there's lots of questions that our participants had. Uh, many of our participants are undocumented and pending asylum, and so there were legal issues with that and, and getting the grants and the funding and, the, and what have you. But overall, it has been transforming folks' lives. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing more people uh, get stably housed, um, go to school, like community college, and get training or learn English and be able to uh, move from being monolingual Spanish-speaking to being bilingual, right? Um, so on and so forth. So I think it's been really amazing that we've been able to do it. And other organizations are now trying to start their pilots and it's just been a learning lesson and I think an innovative approach all at the same time. You, you talk about is getting people into housing and giving them a leg up. Mm -hmm. Homeless, homelessness here in the Bay Area is a huge problem yeah. with um, the rising cost, rental costs and the multi-barrier um, to um, home ownership. Um, so the Trans District created the HOT program for people who are right there at the edge of losing their place or close to mm -hmm. it. And I thought that was brilliant because, you know, there's, there's unlike in my city, there is, you know, a, not totally, a, totally efficient, but at least it's something like a, like SROs. There's different little housing programs here in, in the Bay Area. And you was like, since that already exists, those kind, those kind of things, let's get to that demographic that they may be working. They may be, um, they just not making enough money to keep them afloat in this. Mm -hmm. How can we, how your the strategy was to focus on that. Talk about the HOT program and why that was a strategy. Yeah. Ah, the HOT program. <laughs> the HOT program is one of those programs that I think was before its time. Mm. It failed, right? So it's one of the programs that I'm like most disappointed by in the at the district because it didn't do what I had hoped it would do. Mm -hmm. But it did something. It just didn't land. 
the way that I'd hoped. So we closed that program a year later, mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know. The idea was, when we think of housing, often philanthropy, other nonprofits, there's just a way that people do things just because it's already been done that way, or that's just how we do things, and, and then they keep it going. And, and I get bored. I'm like, we're stuck in a rut. But more specifically, who are we not helping? Right? So all these organizations were launching these trans-affirming housing programs. There's Our Trans Home. Um, their Taj's Coalition launched a housing program. And other nonprofits, like larger housing nonprofits, started doing you know, equity-based approaches and identifying and providing you know, housing solutions for trans people coming out of jails and prisons or you know, trans people living on the streets or what have you. Right? And so when we think of housing and sustainability, we always think of those who are literally homeless on the streets, right? And getting them into housing. At the same time, there is a population of people who are struggling to maintain their housing or they don't have access to keep housing of their own. And so I wanted to address, you know, specifically folks in the service based industries and fringe economy. So your gig workers, your Uber drivers, uh, Lyft, your food couriers, your um, ride share people, sex workers, right? Um, housekeeping, right? People who are in sort of fringe economy and in service economy. So the, the your barista, your local coffee shop or the the sales associate at, at the candle store or whatever it is, right? The people that you wouldn't ordinarily think of who are probably making minimum wage um, and are not able to obtain sustainable housing for themselves. Um, and then being trans as a barrier, again, when I lost my apartment in San Francisco, I then had to look for roommates. And I struggled because I would go on Craigslist and then people would like me enough to interview me, I would go to their house, and then they wouldn't pick me. And a lot of trans people would share that with me, like, okay, everyone makes it sound like it's very easy to get roommates in the Bay Area. Not for trans people, no. No, I mean, it all depends, because in the Craigslist ad, they'll put, like, queer, non-binary, vegan, household, seeking, da-da-da-da-da-da, and then you show up and you're not their brand of trans, queer, non-binary, vegan, (laughs) um, blah, 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 blah. And so a lot of our folks were girls who, it's like, oh, if you just got a job, then you would get your housing and get your shit together, right? And these girls were getting their jobs, and then they had nowhere to live, right? Um, Or they weren't living in environments that would allow them to actually stay in those roles. So it's like, imagine getting the job as a barista, but then you gotta run over to the shelter at 3 p.m. to go for your bed, and then go back, and then come back at 7 to get your bed, right? Every single night. Because shelters do it, check in, they figure you don't have a job, you're homeless. Right. So to keep your bed, you need to come at 1 to 3 p.m., check in for the night, Right? And then come back because the shelter is not open. So you need to come back in the evening to claim your bed. And if you're 15 minutes late, we give your bed to someone else and then you are out of luck. Right? So we had a. Makes sense. (laughs) So we had a few (laughs) folks that were in those kind of situations. 
And so with the launch of the housing program, it was very simple. We partnered with a developer, um, Star City at that time. They had what was, I think of them as SROs, but they were co-living. So think of co-working spaces like WeWork, right? Um, sort of the brands that people think of when they think of renting a small little office and then sharing the common spaces. And that was the concept for co-living. So they would take, in San Francisco at least, these old hotels, gut them out, make them glamorous, put in like, you know, stainless steel appliances, top-of-the-line carpeting, pest control, all the things, right? And they'd make these beautiful like dorms, co-living, right? SROs, basically. And put people, yeah, and then they charge people like 3000 a month mm. to live in there. Um, so they're actually not cheap. They're cheaper than what the market is, so they're always... A 15 right to 20% it. below <laughs> what the market is for a studio, right? And so they pay attention to the market, and that's how they develop their price. And then, you know, if folks live in, like, newer buildings, you know, it's like you sign a lease and you get concessions, and that's how they market it as, like, the rent being cheaper because they've amortized the concessions throughout the life of your lease. So, like, oh, you get three months free or whatever, whatever. That's not a discount. That's just the price of the thing, and then they raise it up. So what we did is we partnered with them, and we held a bunch of their units for their new buildings. Um, and so we did what was called a holding agreement, um, not a lease. So the trans district was not the landlord. I did not. I was like, if someone doesn't pay rent and like they have to be evicted, the optically, like the trans district evicting a trans person from their home, mm-mm, no. So <laughs> thankfully, I actually worked with lawyers on that one, and like we did what was called a holding agreement, where we paid the rent for these vacant units until we could fill them, and then we immediately switched and we sponsored the rent at fifty percent. And so my encouragement to all the participants was to save what they ordinarily, the other fifty percent that they would ordinarily pay put it in savings. And so we were able to, to stably house over 26 people for that program mm. for a year. A blessing in disguise. When the program shuttered, we had negotiated with the developer a set rate that wouldn't, and, and, and certain limits on increase in rent. So they got to still pay the substantially reduced rate of what they were ordinarily charging. Yeah, so like a rent control type of situation. Yes, yeah. but lower than the market. Right. Yeah. I think when you think about failing, where, yeah, it may not worked out the way you wanted it to work out idealistically, but that is still a win. You got people in cheaper housing, and I'm pretty sure that some of them are still in those spots. Yeah, and it yeah. was beautiful. I mean, the, the rubric was I went and looked at different developers myself. I laid in the beds that they had, uh, right, because they come furnished. Right? So we wanted something that was low barrier. Like, what if you don't have furniture? Like, mm -hmm. okay, well, they have it. You just got to buy your bedding. And then we would buy, like, we'd give them housewarming gifts. That was my favorite part. Mm -hmm. So we would get them, like, bedding and things. We had a partnership with Target. So, like, we would get, like, bedding and toiletries and art. And we would, like, gift it to them and, like, welcome home and that kind of thing. So I... Yeah, but it was very important to me that it had to be somewhere that I myself would live. Because I wasn't just going to throw trans people in some dump and like roach coach and be like, well, you got housing. Like, no. Be grateful. Would Arya Saeed, <laughs> as bougie as she is, I know y'all think I'm bougie, so <laughs> as bougie as she is, 
would she herself live in there? And if she wouldn't, because there were many, and the, the staff can tell you, there were many buildings that we looked at, and I was like, mm-mm, no, I don't, mm-mm, no, not this one. <laughs> right? Because I figured we had the coins, thank God, people had donated, so we had the coins, and, and this was entirely funded by donations, right? right? So people donated in 2020, then they stopped donating in 2021. But... Um, in 2020, they donated, and so I was like, "Why don't we do a housing program? We don't need it. We don't need to get a grant yet. Once we launch the program, then we can fundraise to keep the program. Right. But we have the resources to do it for a year, and so that's what we did. But um, you know, foundations weren't really interested in it. Um, the city felt that they had already overextended on trans housing commitments and weren't interested in adding another sort of type of housing subsidy program and so it just kind of deadpanned but um, I thought it was before it's time so I think if that program came out like in two years from now Mm -hmm. then I think it would make more sense to people as we're seeing the plight of people who are working in gig economy right and we saw that in the pandemic but I don't think we paid attention how these rideshare apps were fighting against providing benefits to sick time, vacation time. What happens when you're sick, and you and you and that's your sole income? You have no safety net. What happens when a pandemic happens? No one was giving them unemployment. Right. They had to create a special law so that they could get unemployment. Right. Like, and what is happening to workers' rights right now? Like, we're seeing the dissolution of traditional workers' rights and benefits, Um, with more companies pursuing independent contracting, gig economy sort of labor, where the person, you know, they don't have any safety net resources. No. I'm in that situation now. Yeah. Right. Sorry. (laughs) And I digress. But, you know, it's just always something that's been really important to me is, like, um, you know, sustaining and supporting folks like that in the service economy. Like, we've all worked in service industry, food service, retail. Um, right? And when you're sick, you're gainfully employed. If you don't work, you don't eat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's like, what I mean, <laughs> and so um, how, how are folks able to access housing in this city, right? And so this housing program is specific to an issue in San Francisco, which now you have the very, very rich and the very, very poor. And so you don't have the working class and the middle class in between. They've moved out most of them, right? And so, but often this is where you get your job, right? If you want to be a barista or work as a server or a bartender or hairstylist or whatever, you're usually commuting into the city to make your coins and, and do your job, and then you've got to live way out. And so we wanted people to also be able to live in the city that they work in. Mm-hmm. Well, the transgender district is not a direct service. There's a lot of direct service stuff going on. <laughs> in yes. the past years. That's yeah. a lot of stuff. But let's shift a little bit and talk about some of the fun stuff, some of the cultural stuff mm-hmm. that you created while you were there. Um, during your tenure at the Transgender District, you created one of the largest trans musician festivals mm-hmm. that I can remember that I know of. So talk about that. Talk about the Riot Party. The Riot Party, oh my God, that was definitely like Sean and I's crazy idea. We had seen, I think, Questlove did the, he uncovered that documentary of, what was it? Summerfest or Soulfest. Soulfest, Summerfest in New York. Yes. Right? Um, And it was just like 
all these musicians like Marvin Gaye, Diana Ross, all these people like performing. And this was after the riots, right? And so um, that was like aligned with us. But we had this daydream of doing a music festival for trans artists. And we specifically wanted it to be amplifying trans musicians and yeah, and just like celebrating the culture, uh, like the modern culture of trans community with this like historic preservation piece of um, educating the public on the Compton's Cafeteria Riots of 1966 and just sort of the history that trans people and queer people in this country have and having to sort of fight and advocate and uprise against law enforcement and government um, for discriminating against us, right, and creating laws that were anti-LGBT or anti-trans. Um, so we wanted to fuse that together, but we wanted to treat it like a residency. So we wanted it, like, what space do we know where trans artists, who often are overlooked always in the music industry <laughs> and performing arts, right, and give them this opportunity to share their work uh, with an audience that understands them, and then also a space for them to meet other artists and collaborate. That was the dream. Mm -hmm. And so we were going to start in 2020. We were, like, super juiced about it, and then... COVID. And then we converted it. So we did the Winter Gala mm -hmm. in 2020. And I think people were shocked because of the level of production. You co-hosted it with T.S. Madison. Yes. And everyone was really shocked by the level of production because we like pulled out the big guns and like yeah. figured out a way to make it because I, I was uncompromising. I was like, my vision is that it has to be like the BET Awards. <laughs> Like in 2020, where mm -hmm. all the artists had like pre recorded their like visual content. Everybody was trying to figure their online shows out uh -huh. and all that kind of stuff. And like at that time, I don't know about Houston, but in San Francisco, it was starting to get a little like kitschy. So it's like you tune in and you want to support the, the queens and the nightlife performers, and it's like someone on their like iPhone 6 propped on a roll of toilet paper, and they're like dancing in their hallway, and it's like, <laughs> like it just got, <laughs> it got really kitschy, and it was like, oh, well, it's COVID, but I figured by December 2020, we should have gotten adjusted, and we did, and so uh, we booked everybody that we could think of. Um, and we wanted it to just be like a love letter, obviously raise funds for the district, but more importantly, we knew people were back on lockdown, at least in San Francisco. Again, it's the holidays, people couldn't really travel, and we just wanted to spark joy. So we had you, T.S. Madison, we had Nomi Ruiz from Jessica Six, we had Don Richard from Danny Kane, who's not trans, we had Lion Babe, who's not trans, right? Um, but like. We wanted trans people, but also allies. And we also wanted trans people to be able to say they've worked with these other artists who are celebrated in mainstream pop music, um, where they otherwise would not have had that opportunity. Right. And so we had this roster of artists, and everyone just like understood the vision and like put their best foot forward. And I think that was like one of the best moments, mm -hmm. and then uh, the riot party. We had, you, we had Katie Couric introducing some of the artists. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> yeah, we had Katie Couric. Who else did we have? So we had India Moore, we had Eves, we yeah. had Tess Holliday. Um, 
Oh my god, I can't even think. We just like pulled every yeah. like cat out the hat that you could think <laughs> of um, for that celebration, and people were like really warmly like yeah. celebrating it, and like um, because of that, there were trans people that performed that were able to get opportunities on things like Pose or yeah. other things, like because the cast of Pose was watching at home just like everybody else. Like I really loved that like everybody got really into it. Yeah. We had like live comment streams, so like all it was just it was a beautiful moment for the community to like come together. Um, the ordinary skincare brand sponsored. Uh, we had like a LGBT dating app as well. Like it just it was really cool, and yeah. so. Once we hit that ante, we had to level it up, and we did the riot party the last couple of years. Uh, one was like outdoors, street festival vibes, and then the other was last year's at Hibernia. And I'm really proud of that. I think it hasn't gotten as much love and support, at least from social media and, and the media, um, that I thought it would, I guess. But I think it's just, yeah, we have to remember to support trans artist yeah um and it's hard because you know where do you go to find all that and so that's why we wanted to put it in like this festival before the trans district one of the first things that i worked with you on we did a state of emergency event um mm -hmm. at the commonwealth of san francisco and we had an amazing conversation um, about, you know, just some of the harms that were coming against um, trans people at that time because there was a, a peak. A at, increase a in increase murders, in murders and towards violence. black trans people. Yeah, and so it was hosted um, by um, Honey Mahogany, me, and Tony Michelle out of Atlanta because, you know, we were from the South and the concentration of some of the murders was really, st particularly at the time, Texas, my, my state, was the highest one. Mm -hmm. um, and then Louisiana, Georgia, da 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 da, Florida. Um, and so you went on to create with the district, that was your, your own separate project, but then you went on to create um, some amazing conversations about um, like the state of trans visibility. Oh, I love those series. Hollywood yeah. and politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tell us about that series. Oh, goodness me. Um, yeah, so the state of, um, state of emergency series. I basically, my dream was to do like the People's Forum, Commonwealth mm -hmm. Club kind of content where you're like highlighting the social justice issues, but for like everyday people who may not know about how to help make those changes. Right. That was like my dream job. Like maybe I'll do that now is like produce that kind of content. But we did the, the round tables. I think we were supposed to do three and we ended up doing two for Pride. And 2021, yeah, 2021, we did the State of Transgender Visibility. And, you know, with this, like, trans tipping point, there's just a way at that time it started to feel like things were plateauing, but also changes were happening. So we had the roundtable featuring trans people in Hollywood mm -hmm. and how they're navigating it. And if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube and find it. But it's really illuminating. We had Amaya Scott, um, who just came off of the television show she did. We had T.S. Madison, uh -huh. who was sort of coming into her power in Hollywood. 
And then we had Zoe Luna. She had been celebrated and sensationalized Mm -hmm. as like this trans actress in the craft. And then she sort of talked openly and honestly about what happened after that. The exploitation of a child trans star, basically. Yeah, of being a child star, being exploited by your family, and, you know, who's booking you, right? Because you're sensationalized. You know I love when things shock me. But, you know, I thought it was just going to be a general talk and we were going to talk about, oh, what's the perks of you being in Hollywood? What has changed? And baby, she came, Zoe came and popped us with tea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Zoe, Amaya dropped some things. And I think it showed, like, you know, I just wrote about Angelica Ross. Yeah. um, And how... I think I we uh, wrote for Refinery29 and we titled it Angelica Ross's Own American Horror Story, yeah. Being a Black Trans Woman in Hollywood, and how the gatekeepers of Hollywood will gas at you, yeah. right? Um, oh, I'm doing this for you. I'm trying to uplift you, but then put you in a contract where you can't work, <laughs> right? And you can't take other work. And then you're, like, sensationalized and you're underpaid and... Yeah, and then how many roles are there for trans actors, right? Like, I mean, we could dive deep on that all day, but, like, wanting to have a space for those kind of dialogues openly and honestly just to be archived, to be documented. Mm -hmm. So we did the same with politics. Uh, Chase Strangio had just did the Supreme Court uh, victory. Uh, In 2020. Amy Stevens versus Supreme Court or whoever, and um, they just won. And so we wanted, and then we were seeing like the rise of trans people running for office. So Honey Mahogany and Mariah Moore mm-hmm. were actively running. Um, and Sarah McBride had just won. Yes, yeah. she had just became a senator. And I can't remember who else we had. We had, I mean. Um, Andrea Jenkins. Yes, I was um, Andrea Philippe Jenkins. Cunningham. Mm-hmm. And I think it did a brilliant job of um, just highlighting their stories and their journey um, and and what needs to happen in order to create a world in which trans people can exist without harm. Mm. During your tenure, there had been a, a peak in trans death, and we did lose some of one of our team members yeah. um, at the trans district. So along with supporting community in that kind of way that we have described. Um, there was many times that the trans district stepped up and supported some of like the funeral services of trans people and even just taking the helm of um, um, actually organizing the services for some of the people. And so can you talk about that, that work as well, just for a little bit? Yeah. Um, it was one of those things where I felt that if our work had not reached them when they were alive, that the least we could do with the resources that we had was usher them into the next plane or to heaven or whatever you believe in. Um, Like that uh, our trans siblings should be doing that for us when we pass unexpectedly, right? Um, And so something else that was happening is we were seeing these upticks and this increase in violence against black trans women specifically. Um, so there was a young woman that was at that gas station being beat up by the 1516 
men, right? And that video went and viral. Men and cis women. Yeah. Um, India, India, Dior. Uh huh. Right. So you see that, and you see that video go viral at the same time of George Floyd being yes. murdered, and at the same time of Tony McDay right. being murdered in um, Florida. Mm -hmm. And in China, Gibson. Yeah. And, right. These moments where um, trans people are being harmed or murdered, it goes viral. Bianca Hill. We got so many names. Yeah. Bianca Hill being attacked by the police in Kansas City and, and then it, killed a month later. And then no one checks on them. Yeah. Right? So what was happening is we'd see these murders of trans, black trans women, mostly. Mm -hmm. And then it's like all over the media. The community is organizing around it. And then you reach out to the family, like, do you need support? And nobody has contacted them. Ah, I could, I, I don't want to cry, but, like, it would bother me. Because it'd be organizers that we know. It'd be these girls, I don't want to say names, but yeah. these girls that jump in front of a camera anytime something happens to us, and they're trans themselves, and they're trying to take the opportunity to be in the limelight and promote themselves and their work and whatever, whatever. And so you see that, and then every news article, every LGBT media outlet is running the story. You know, you have these organizations that are well-resourced, millions and millions and millions of dollars in endowment, and they don't do anything. They just report the numbers, right? Everyone quotes Human Rights Campaign's website for the statistics around trans people. Human Rights Campaign has more money than most of our nonprofits combined, mm -hmm. and they don't reach out to the families to cover the burials of of fallen trans people, right? And like, mm -hmm. so we were doing this out of our savings. I never talked about it publicly um, until now. Um, I used to resent when people were like, what does the district do? And I'm like, uh, what doesn't it do at this point? Uh, but in that regard, I just, I mean, it felt weird to do it publicly. Um, but yeah, we basically had this quiet bereavement fund and I would reach out to the family and then more often than not, no one had reached out to them except media, right? And so now they're on the news, right, talking about their daughter's death or what have you, and they're like, we can't even cremate her. We don't have any money. Do you know what I mean? So we would usually cover the cost mm -hmm. to help them with that. And I think with Ivory, it just it really hit home very differently. Um, so Ivory worked at the district, and then... Um, she went and worked at the trans shelter and yeah, she overdosed and which was completely unexpected. As soon as she had been missing for, I think a week and a half and, uh, the staff at the org, not the leadership, just, they thought she called out sick and just wasn't showing up. Mm -hmm. Um, but her peers went to her apartment and they found her mm -hmm. and then they called us and then I came straight back to San Francisco to find her mom. So I worked with JM and Pow um, in finding her mom. We couldn't find her mom. Then we did. And then, you know, she needed support of her own. And then, of course, the community was, I think, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And I think this highlights what I want to thank you for. Because if, if we just think about everything that we have talked about during this discussion, mm -hmm. 
as far as the attack, attacks from community members, attack from fake leaders, attacks from um, uh, people thinking, oh, what are you doing and not doing enough and, and all the things that you're holding and even holding this along with your own personal health struggles. I, I've been in a situation with you where I'm calling you and you at an emergency room because mm -hmm. of your own personal health struggles and then somebody, and then a day later, after you get out of the hospital, you gotta deal with something else that comes along with the district. I have seen you multiple times sacrifice yourself and um, for a while, even some of these people don't know what's happening mm -hmm. dogging you and or or praising you you know it's a it's a give and take yeah. and so you're holding all of these things and i think that for me that is the point of this conversation to show in your tenure at the district what have you done that and how you have impacted the culture on a national level and on a local level and i want to thank you for your work i want to thank you for um, the hours that you brought in, that, that, that you put in, and the, the seed, the planting the seeds of inspiration to many people, because I see some of your work being, that I know came from you, <laughs> being implemented in other cities and people trying things out. So no, it may not work out, worked out here or it did work, so let's bring it here. Trans people are literally seeing the work that you do and transferring it as somebody who lives in a state that is crazy. Mm -hmm. I see these things kind of popping up and trying things, and they're trying different ways to do things because of your leadership, because of your example, and I want you to know that we do appreciate you, and we see the work, and it has impacted our national discourse around how to care for trans people under multiple layers of circumstances, and so we appreciate you. Thank you. And you are now passing the torch to our new leaders. Yeah. <laughs> and so can you talk about Carlo and Rihanna and what's the, what, what do you hope now that you have stepped down, what do you hope for in the future of transgender district leadership and programming and what's next? What do you hope for next for them? Yeah. Um, Brianna and Carlo, what a dream team. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited. Um, it kind of just happened. I, yeah, it just it just happened and it worked out. Um, we got to meet Carlo and uh, he's just so talented and, and brilliant. And then um, Brianna took some coaxing um, <laughs> to like, come on girl, come lead. Um, but both of them, you know, they've been in this work for quite a long time. Um, and so I think them together, um, we kind of came up with this co-directorship based on the challenges that I had to deal with in my leadership and how often felt very isolated and unsupported and burnt out all the time. Right. And so creating this co-directorship allowed for them to have balance and a support system within each other. Because um, I think that's the thing I yearned for most is to have someone to lean on and be like, hey, what do you think about this? Right? Like, having that. And so they have since started in August and I think they're reaching 90 days of their leadership mm -hmm. and um, they're keeping everything going um, and they have a lot of exciting ideas about how they want to do things and um, different approaches to community organizing. I mean, when I called Brianna the other day, she was at the uh, local women's shelter, like passing out flyers. like. 
bringing it back to that. Like, mm-hmm. and I really love that the two of them together bringing that element back into our work, um, more grassroots, and yeah. And so they have, oh my gosh, they need the love and support and donations <laughs> um, to make this little engine that could keep going. At the same time, I think they both have incredible visions for what, you know, building trans futures looks like. Right. Yeah. Mm. So what's next for you? Um, I'm still sorting that out. I feel like I'm falling into something, actually. Mm -hmm. I had thought I would take this, like, extended break. And, I mean, a plan was to go to, like, France or Portugal for a few months and, like, you know what I mean? Like, and I still have these personal goals maybe it'll happen. Um, but, you know, the coins kind of, you know, started dwindling. And um, <laughs> no shade. I That's what happened with you. I mean, no shade. Uh, it's like, you know, I had to start consulting. Um, but I'm consulting with organizations right now in the South who need all the resources and love that they can to, to really lift the work that they're doing. And I'm helping them with fundraising and communications and... Um, I'm still doing my own platform kind of stuff here and there. And I'm just trying things out. And I don't think people realize, for the last seven years, the district has been my entire identity. So I have, you know, eat, drink, breathe, sleep the district um, for this long that I don't, I didn't know who I was outside of the project anymore. I mean, my whole life has been curated to support this work. And so now, it's like I'm still questioning, like, what do I actually want? Mm. Um, and I'm still figuring that out. I'm still okay. exploring. Um, I'm still doing my thing, and opportunities are falling into my lap, which I'm very grateful for. Um, the phone still rings. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, so I'm able to work on different projects. But now I think I'm in a space where um, I get to work on projects short term and kind of bounce around which is what I think I need to, to stay sharp um, and to feel like I'm accomplishing my mission. Gimme, gimme, gimme euphoria, more than peace of mind. It's the joy and space to change the tide. Gimme, gimme, gimme euphoria, more than peace of mind. It's the joy and space to change the tide. What, you know, with trans people, the cliche is to talk about gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. What is bringing you euphoria? Ooh. What is making you happy? <sighs> What's making me happy is, I know this sounds like diva-ish, but waking up without an alarm clock um, and letting the sunlight wake me up has been really refreshing. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a long-standing thing because um, my schedule is getting busy again. But that, after being carefully curated, waking up at 5 in the morning every single morning and then working until 9, 10 p.m., do you know what I mean? Like, And that was my life every single day. And then traveling on top of that... Um, and now, like, eating three meals a day instead of 
just like one big meal or two meals or I don't know, whatever. Like there's been a lot of changes that have made me feel a lot better. Um, and, and if I'm not having a productive day, not feeling guilty, which is new for me because I'm a perfectionist and a workaholic. So it has been an adjustment for me, but it's been giving me joy. Thank y'all for listening to this interview with the amazing Arya Saeed. And make sure that you continue to support the Transgender District and all the things that they have coming up. And we will see y'all. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Hey, sister. Hey, sibling.